Good morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 7. 1 Samuel chapter 7. We're continuing on in our series through 1 and 2 Samuel. If you're new or visiting at Midtown, this is what we do regularly. We start in chapter 1 of a book and we preach all the way through until the book is finished. Trying our best not to skip any texts, even the hard ones, and listening to God's Word. So 1 Samuel chapter 7. For the last few chapters, our narrative has been focused on the Ark of the Covenant, how it was captured by the Philistines, only to then be returned to Israel through a mighty intervention of the Lord's hand. That's what we saw last week. This week, the storyline transitions back to the prophet Samuel. He returns as the main character of the narrative, and his ministry is the focus of this important chapter. So let's pick it up in verse 2 of chapter 7 and see how the Lord will use Samuel for the good of His people. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church through His inspired author. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve Him only. And He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, and drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that He may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also... He judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. Let's pray now and ask the Lord to bless us 
as we listen to his word preached. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your faithfulness to your people. Even when we are undeserving, Father, you remain faithful, merciful, and gracious. We join our voices, Father, with the voice of your people from ages past that you indeed alone are God. You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You are merciful and gracious, showing your mercy to generation upon generation. Father, this is who you are. This is who you have revealed yourself to be from time past until today. Give us eyes to see you as the merciful God. We pray, Father, for ears to hear this morning. I pray that you would keep me from error as I speak from your word, that it would be clear and plain, which is how it ought to be spoken. We ask God for discernment as your people. We know, Father, that we need the pure, undiluted truth of your word. Would you be so gracious to give us that today? And grant us ears to hear. We pray this, Father, in Christ's name, confident that you hear us, for he is risen from the dead. Amen. Well, perhaps the best way to describe this chapter would be with the phrase, role reversal. Role reversal. The things we've come to expect so far in 1 Samuel are reversed, and the storyline is, in a sense, turned on its head. Did you catch that as we read the text together? Life in Israel looks different here in chapter 7. It looks different. Instead of neglecting the Lord, the people seek Him. Instead of defeat, there is victory. And most striking of all, instead of unfaithful leaders who take advantage of the people, there is a strong, faithful leader who guides the people in what is right. The change is nothing short of astonishing. Life looks different in Israel. Things have changed. And for the better. And on one level, friends, that is the key takeaway of the entire chapter. Israel's past failures are not the end of their story. Praise God. Yes, they have strayed into idolatry. And yes, they even forgot the Lord's covenant. But in His grace, the Lord has not forgotten them. They have strayed, but He has not. They have broken His covenant, but the Lord remains ever faithful to His Word. In every season... The Lord God stands ready to help when His people turn to Him again in repentance and faith. So brothers and sisters, here at the outset, I would encourage you to take hold of this simple but powerful truth. God's mercy towards His people never comes to an end. I know you've heard that before, but please don't gloss over it today. Instead, think of how far you've strayed. Think of how often you have forgotten God, just like Israel did. Think of all the reasons why you don't deserve to know the Lord. Now hear it again. God's mercy towards His people never comes to an end. Friends, that's 1 Samuel 7 in a nutshell. Mercy is the theme of this chapter. The mercy of God for His undeserving people. People like us. In light of that theme, here's what I would like us to do this morning. There are three distinct scenes in this chapter, and each one gives us a different perspective on God's mercy. So that's how we're going to spend our time considering together three pictures of the mercy of God from 1 Samuel 7. The first picture is found in verses 2 to 6, where we see the mercy of repentance. The mercy of repentance. 
for such a powerful chapter, it begins very quietly. Look at verse 2. It reads like little more than a transitional verse. The book is closed, so to speak, on the Ark of the Covenant, at least for now. And then without much explanation, 20 years pass. We don't know all that is happening. Time just silently marches on. And in one verse, two decades go by. It's all very quiet. Until that is, we come to the last line of the verse. Here the quiet is interrupted with something new and unexpected. Notice again what the text says. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Friends, that is a remarkable change. Hard-hearted Israel is in a state of mourning. They are broken. They are grieved. And their grief concerns their relationship to God. And during this time of lament, Samuel reappears. Notice the suddenness of verse 3. There's no introduction. Samuel just returns to the life of the nation. He just shows up again. And notice what he does when he returns. He proclaims God's Word to God's people. You see, friends, while Israel's grief is right and good, it's only the first step. It's only the first step. There is something else that they must pursue, and that something else is repentance. That's the theme of Samuel's preaching. He calls the people to repent. In fact, in verse 3 alone, Samuel presents several marks of genuine repentance. Let's note them together so that we too might learn what it is to truly repent before the Holy God. First off, repentance requires action. Repentance requires action. Notice the if-then structure of verse 3. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and serve the Lord only. What a world of wisdom there is in that counsel. Samuel knows something vital about repentance. He knows we need both brokenness of spirit and change in life. Both of them. Or to say it another way, repentance begins in the heart, but it must be manifested in the hands. What you do. We're affected internally with sorrow over sin, and that sorrow then spills out in a renewed commitment to actually change. That's what Samuel is getting at here. He's reminding Israel that it's good to lament. You've got to start with lament, but it's also necessary to change. Brothers and sisters, is this how we think of repentance? As both grief and action? Or do we most often stop with sorrow, content that we have changed? I pray we take this to heart. Repentance is not the same as saying, I'm sorry to God. We must begin with that sorrow, but we must also seek to put away whatever those sinful practices are. This is why the Apostle Paul, so often in the New Testament, says to put off sin and put on godliness. Both of them. Put off, put on. Because repentance requires action. It's a vital mark of true repentance. The prophet Samuel continues, and he also emphasizes that repentance is costly. It requires action, and repentance is costly. Notice the first command in verse 3. Put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you. Later in verse 4, we learn that Baal is one of these foreign gods. These are Canaanite fertility gods. 
They were believed to control the growth of crops. If you wanted a rich harvest, which everybody in this day and age did because they were an agrarian culture, if you wanted a rich harvest, then you'd better give Baal his due. He's the God of the storm. He brings rain, they said. So you better give Baal his due. How did you do that? Through the practice of sexual immorality. That's how you gave Baal his due. So note what has happened here in the life of Israel. The desire for sustenance and the desire for pleasure have come together in the worship of false gods. Friends, that's a powerful combination. Right? The urge of the belly and the urge of the flesh. It's a powerful combination. In other words, the worship of these false gods was easy. It felt good. It appealed to the desires of the flesh. Now, with that in mind, listen again to what Samuel tells them. Put away. Get rid of them. Cast them off. Kick them out. Put away the foreign gods. Friends, do you hear how costly that is? It wasn't as simple as throwing the statues in the trash. You had to go against the grain of the culture. You had to live a radically different life than that of your neighbor. You had to deny yourself what felt good. You had to be willing to accept the reproach of the people in the community who thought you were weird. Friends, that's what repentance looks like. In every age, it is costly. I'm reminded here of something one of my former pastors said regarding this point. He was counseling a man who was seeking to repent in some significant ways from some significant sin. And my pastor told the man, if it feels like you're dying, then you're doing it right. If it feels like you're dying, then you're doing it right. That's so true, isn't it? To repent of sin, we must die to our natural desires in order to pursue what feels very unnatural. Friends, holiness isn't easy. Repentance is costly. As the Lord Jesus said during His own ministry, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. We're always so quick to explain what Jesus doesn't mean as though Jesus the Master Teacher needs our help softening His language. Why aren't we as quick to emphasize what Jesus does emphatically mean? That repentance is costly. Still, Samuel has more to say. And next, he stresses that repentance is directed toward God's Word. It requires action. It is costly. And repentance is directed toward God's Word. Notice Samuel's second and third commands. Direct your hearts to the Lord and serve Him only. Now, what's striking is how familiar Samuel's words should sound to these Israelites. This call to serve God comes straight from Deuteronomy. It's a quote. Samuel's voice here is the voice of Moses. And that's an evidence of God's mercy. The Lord is not asking His people for something new. He's not asking them for something new. This is how Israel was called to live from the very beginning. And what's more, the Lord has not left them in the dark to figure out what He expects. No, He has told them clearly in His Word. In fact, friends, this is one of the ways we can know repentance is genuine when we are brought once again to live under the authority of the Scriptures. Brothers and sisters, this is why regular, consistent exposure to Scripture is the lifeblood of Christianity. 
It is the lifeblood of Christianity. Every day, we're called to repent of our sin and trust once more in the Gospel. That's the normal Christian life. Daily repenting of sins and trusting in Christ. That's normal. So if you feel like you're always coming back to God to confess your sin, then good news! You're a Christian. It's the normal Christian life. But where does our repentance get its shape? And how does the Spirit's conviction remain sharp in our lives? Through the regular interaction with God's Word. You see, reading the Bible is not simply a rote activity or an intellectual exercise. Reading the Bible with eyes of faith is an act of submission. Submitting yourself to the authority of God. When you open the Scriptures, you are saying to God, I want to live under your authority. I know there are areas of my life where sin still has too much of a foothold. Would you show me those areas through your Word? And would you work by your Spirit to bring about repentance in my heart? Friends, if you prayed like that every day when you went to read the Bible, that's a fruitful life. It's a fruitful life. That's what interacting with God's Word is all about. It's communing with God as a testimony of our submission to Him. So friends, let's learn from Samuel at this point. Let's let's take this insight from this Old Testament prophet and allow it to change the way we think about approaching the Bible. Instead of just reading the words on the page, consider that reading the Spirit's means of continually working repentance and faith In your life, repentance is always directed toward God's Word. One more mark of repentance from the prophet Samuel. Repentance is the prelude to mercy. Requires action, costly, directed toward God's Word. Repentance is the prelude to mercy. Notice how Samuel ends his message. The last line of verse 3. And He, that is the Lord, will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the connection is clear. If Israel wants to know God's deliverance, then they must come to Him in repentance. It's that essential. There is no deliverance for those who hard-heartedly remain in their sins. They must repent in order to be delivered. Now, you have to be careful here. We can easily go off the rails of orthodoxy at this point. Samuel is not saying our repentance causes God to act. Remember, God is free and cannot be controlled by anyone, not even His repentant people. He is never in our debt. Rather, Samuel is saying that repentance is the prelude or the preparation to experiencing the mercy of God. Think about Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. I'm I'm sure you remember that. It's probably Jesus' most well-known parable. The parable of the prodigal son. A son squanders his father's money and then lives in squalor because he's too afraid to face his father. The son finally comes to his senses and he returns home only to find his fears unfounded. His father actually runs out to welcome him and celebrates the return of his son. You remember the parable? Okay. Now, In the parable, when did the father decide to be merciful to his son? When? Long before the son came home. Long before. The father's heart was set on mercy while the son was still in the far country sleeping with the pigs. But how did the son experience that mercy? 
only after he turned from his sin and returned to his Father. His repentance was the prelude to the mercy. And that's what Samuel is teaching here in chapter 7. Yes, Israel must take action against their sin. Yes, they must pay the cost. But at the end of the day, their repentance is ultimately about casting themselves on the mercy of God. Indeed, repentance is the prelude to that mercy. This is a point we desperately need in our day and age. Many Christians view repentance as something austere and harsh. It has very negative connotations in their minds. Maybe it does for you. And while repentance is certainly difficult and costly, it also comes with a great blessing. The blessing of experiencing again and again the mercy of God. You see, repentance is not an end in itself. Repentance is the God-appointed means to bring us to Himself by His grace. This is why the Bible so consistently puts together repentance with faith. They go together like a hand in glove to form the heart of what it means to trust the God who is merciful. So, brothers and sisters, the next time the Spirit brings conviction in your life, don't run from it. Don't ignore it. Don't hide from it. Instead, consider that moment of conviction a kindness from God. He's being kind to you. He's calling you to repent so that you might know afresh His never-ending mercy. Well, Samuel's message is challenging, but it's also encouraging, isn't it? Repentance requires action. It is costly. It is directed toward God's Word. But it is also full of mercy. I pray we'll learn from Samuel at this point and take with us this truth of the mercy of repentance. As we continue on in the text, we see in verse 4 that Israel listens to Samuel. Look there again. It's yet another sign that things are different. The nation has ears to hear. They put away their idols and serve the Lord. This is followed by a national ceremony of repentance in verses 5 and 6. Samuel gathers the people together, and as one body, they express their repentance through fasting and sacrifice. It's a moving picture of spiritual renewal. That's what it is, 5 and 6. Spiritual renewal. But the encouragement of that renewal is broken in verse 7. The Philistines hear what is happening, and they do not like where this is headed. To the Philistines, this display of national solidarity is a threat to their power. If Israel can find spiritual unity, then it's not long before they find military unity, and then they're just going to throw off the Philistines altogether, and they can't let that happen. So the lords of the Philistines come up to teach Israel a lesson. And Israel is afraid. It's here we see our second picture of mercy. The mercy of deliverance. The mercy of deliverance. Now, Israel has been through this before. Back in chapter 4, when they fought with the Philistines. But while the circumstances are similar, Israel's response here is entirely different. In fact, that's the point of including such a similar scene. 
we're meant to notice the change. And if you look closely at verse 8, it becomes very clear that something has changed among God's people. Notice with me how Israel responds. First of all, instead of relying on themselves, the people confess their helplessness. If you remember from that first battle, the people thought they could solve the problem on their own. They were confident, which is why they never even stopped to pray or to seek God's face. They just looked for a solution that was easy to control. They relied on themselves. Here in chapter 7, it's entirely different. The nation confesses its helplessness. Notice how they beg Samuel to pray on their behalf. You see, they know this situation is beyond them. They need God's help because without it, they're sunk. They confess their helplessness. Along with that confession, there's another evidence of change. Instead of trying to manipulate God, the people humbly trust in Him. They humbly trust in Him. Again, if you remember from chapter 4, the people brought up the ark of God because they thought the ark would save them. You remember when they said it? Let us bring up the ark that it may save us. Remember that, chapter 4? They wanted God's power, but they didn't want a relationship with Him. Here in chapter 7, things are different. Notice the last line of verse 8. Notice how different their language is. That He may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Oh, what a helpful, encouraging pronoun. He. Not it. He. Friends, that's a confession of faith. They're not trying to wield the ark like a weapon. They're trusting only in the Lord. They know that all they have is God. What's more, there seems to be a renewed depth to their relationship with God. Notice how they call Him the Lord, our God. Our God. Do you hear the warmth the affection in that phrase, it's the kind of language that reveals a desire not just for the Lord's power, but for the Lord Himself. They want God. And that's the point, friends. The people have seen the devastating effects of their sin, and now they have turned to God in genuine repentance. Instead of manipulating God, the people simply and humbly trust in Him. Then notice what happens in verse 9. God provides mercy through a mediator. God provides mercy through a mediator. Samuel steps up to minister in this time of need. He offers a sacrifice of a whole burnt offering, which was a sacrifice of atonement for sin. And Samuel prays. He intercedes on their behalf before the holy God. Those two activities, sacrifice and intercession, are the heart of Samuel's work as Israel's mediator. He sacrifices and he prays. And both of those activities are an expression of faith. Don't miss that point, friends. Israel is desperate here. They have nowhere to turn. They have nowhere to turn. So through the ministry of Samuel, they cast themselves on God in faith. Even Samuel's ministry is marked by faith. Notice in verse 9 how he cries out. That's a cry of desperation. A cry of faith that banks everything on God. And in verse 10, the Lord responds. The sacrifice is accepted and the prayer is heard. The Lord thunders from heaven against the Philistines. In the Lord's providence, it's thundering now. So we get a sense of 
Not a sense at all, because nobody's dying. The Lord thunders from heaven against the Philistines. It's such a wonderful display of God's glory. The Canaanites believed that Baal was the god of the storm. That Baal controlled thunder and lightning and rain. And here it's Israel's God who thunders from heaven. You couldn't make this point any clearer. The Lord alone is God. And He has come to fight for His people. And His thunder proves decisive. The Philistines are thrown into a panic and Israel routs them in battle. Now, what's striking here is this is not the first time God has thrown Israel's enemies into a panic. The same phrase is used in Exodus 14 when God threw the Egyptians into a panic and drowned them in the Red Sea. So do you see what what is happening here? The Lord has delivered His people as in the days of old. In chapter 4, Israel wanted that power of God from of old, but they didn't repent and trust in Him. Now they repent and trust and God says, here it is. And He thunders against their enemies. He has intervened in a mighty way. Truly, friends, His mercy never ends. And notice how Israel has received this mercy. Through the work of a mediator. Through the work of a mediator. Please, don't miss that connection. God raised up Samuel for such a time as this. Through Samuel's sacrifice, and His intercession, the Lord pours out His mercy. Israel only gets the mercy through the mediator. Brothers and sisters, the same is true today. God stands ready to pour out His mercy. And He does so only through the work of a mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Samuel's ministry here in chapter 7 prepares us to understand the ministry of Christ. This is why the book of Hebrews so consistently speaks of Jesus doing two things. Offering a sacrifice and praying. Because that's what a mediator does. He intercedes and He offers sacrifice. This is how God's mercy flows to sinners like us. It flows through the work of a mediator. So, If you stand in need of God's mercy today, if your sin is weighing on you like a boulder of guilt crushing your soul, then hear the good news of the Gospel that rings out in this chapter. You don't have to bear that burden yourself. In fact, you can't bear that burden. Confess your helplessness before God and trust in the Mediator He has provided. Come to Christ, friends. Come to Christ. Why remain in a state of fear? Why try to bear what you can't bear? God has made a way for us. Come to Christ. Whether for the first time or the hundredth time, trust in Him. Come to Christ. He has made the sacrifice that secures God's mercy. Right now, that mercy is available to you. And what's more, right now, the Lord Jesus is praying on behalf of His people to know that you were prayed for by the Son of God, our great High Priest. Is there a greater mercy? Come to Christ. Come to Christ and experience again the mercy of God. That's what Israel experiences here. They experience the mercy of God's deliverance. And in this moment, we're reminded again of God's greatest deliverance, the mercy of the Gospel, the provision of the Lord Jesus. Isn't it wonderful to sit under God's Word, friends? 
How kind of God to give us such rich food for the soul from every portion of the Bible. We're in 1 Samuel 7. This isn't Ephesians 2. All God's Word is profitable. And amazingly, we're not finished. This is what the Bible is like. It's a never-ending feast of the most delightful food. The more you eat, the more you want to eat. And incredibly, the feast never ends. In verse 12 and following, we see the final picture. It's the mercy of remembrance. The mercy of remembrance. Israel routs the Philistines and their victory is so thorough, the Philistines won't bother them again during Samuel's judgeship. That seems to be the point of verses 13 and 15. We know the Philistines come back later because David kills Goliath. We all know that story. But for now, there's peace and security in the nation. In fact, that's one of the key points here at the end of the chapter. Israel is stable. Israel is secure under Samuel's leadership. As he travels throughout the nation, the effects of his, judge, of his judgeship produce peace for the people of God. Stability, security, peace. It's a prosperous time. The victory has been so momentous, it calls for special recognition. So in verse 12, Samuel sets up a stone to commemorate what God has done. This is not the first time God's people have made use of such stones. If you read through the book of Genesis, you'll find the patriarchs setting up stones and pillars quite often. And perhaps the most well-known example comes from Joshua after the people crossed the Jordan River. They set up twelve memorial stones of God's faithfulness to bring them into the promised land. So, there's good precedent for Samuel's decision. He's following in the example of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joshua. He's a good leader. That's what we're meant to see. There's good precedent. But this stone is more than a monument. The Ebenezer stone is also a call to faith. It's a call to faith. You see, Samuel understands the importance of memory in the life of God's people. Israel was to regularly remember God's past faithfulness as the means of encouraging their present faith. Remember the past to find encouragement in the present. This was the purpose behind the Passover meal, for example. As they remembered God's deliverance at the Exodus, the people would be encouraged to trust Him today in the present. And the same is true of this stone here in 1 Samuel 7. When the people see the stone, they will remember how God has helped them. Not just at this battle, but also at every point of their life. And that memory of God's faithfulness will in turn spur them on to continue walking by faith today. That's the value of the Ebenezer stone. It calls God's people to look back so that we might continue to walk forward in faith. We look back to go forward. That's what Samuel's saying here, the importance of memory. Friends, the times have changed, but this point remains true for us today. Memory is a powerful force in our life as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We should be people who remember regularly. For in remembering, we find renewed strength for our faith. You might ask, why is memory so important? Why is it so powerful? Why should we remember Because God never changes. That's why. God never changes. He is always and forever the same. 
And therefore, his past acts are not isolated historical incidents. They are the testimony of who God was, who He is, and who He will forever be. From now until eternity, our God is the God who redeems. He delivered Israel from Egypt into the promised land, and He will deliver us safely into the heavenly kingdom. Our God is the God who provides. He brought manna in the wilderness, and He will give us the food we need to sustain us on our journey to the new Jerusalem. He is the God who helps. He delivered Israel from the Philistines. And He will deliver us from the dominion of sin on the glorious day when Christ our King returns. Friends, we could go on for some time. God's past faithfulness sustains our present faith. We feed upon what He has done in the past. For the Christian then, remembering is not a passive reflection on bygone days. Remembering is fighting for faith. That's what it is. It is an active, ongoing fight to trust God. By remembering, we take our eyes off the things of this world, off of our circumstances, and we fix them on God. Who He is and what He has done. Believing that He does not change. Who He was is who He will be. So we remember. And therefore, we should cultivate This practice of remembering in our individual lives, in our homes, in our churches. Let's be people who are quick to remember. Very practically speaking, friends, know the biblical history of God's people. Know that history. Know the history of Christ's church. What's more, keep a record of God's past faithfulness to you personally and then pass it on to your descendants. Remember those times when God delivered you and share them regularly with others, whether that be your children, your family, your community group, other believers. Remember how God has delivered and share what He has done. In March of 2001, I was headed for a life of, at best, Lukewarm Christianity. And lest you think that doesn't sound that bad, remember what Jesus does to lukewarmness. He spits it out of His mouth. So in March of 2001, I was headed for a life of, at best, lukewarm Christianity. I professed faith in Christ, but I was not pursuing Christ with much purpose. And that spring, in my apartment in Fayetteville, Arkansas, the Spirit of God prompted me to pick up my Bible and study it. I don't know why. I never really studied the Scriptures in depth, so this was new. And as I fumbled my way through books of the Bible, the Lord changed the direction of my life. I can still remember the first time that I truly read Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I read that verse and thought, why has no one told me this is in here? They had. I just didn't listen. To this day, I still have the spiral notebook that I used to record my thoughts. I went and looked at it again this morning. I still have this spiral notebook. And when I look at that notebook, I remember God's mercy. But more importantly, when I look at that notebook, I'm encouraged to keep going back to the Scriptures and believing what God has said. Friends, your lives have moments like that as well. Remember them. Share them frequently and pass them on to the next generation. For in that act of remembering, we magnify 
God's mercy. Well, as we close, we have a chance to put into practice this call to remember. In just a moment, we'll come to Christ's table, and we gather at this table to remember. The church I grew up in had a big wooden altar, and across the front of it was inscribed the words, do this in remembrance of me. That's what we come to the table to do. This is what the Lord's Supper is. It is the church's memorial stone. It's the place we come to look back on what Christ accomplished at the cross, and it's the place we come to look forward to the day when we will eat an even greater feast with our Lord Jesus in His kingdom. And in both of those acts, both looking back and looking forward, we find strength for faith. It's interesting that Samuel named the stone Ebenezer. If you remember from chapter 4, Ebenezer was the location of Israel's failure. It was the site of Israel's defeat. But now, Ebenezer has become the sign of God's deliverance. Brothers and sisters, is that not true also of the cross? It is the sign of our need, the sign of our failure, the sign of our sin, but more than that, it is the sign of God's mercy to deliver us through Christ. May we be people who are rich in memory, and may our remembrance magnify our merciful God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your mercy. Thank You for being a God who mercifully calls us to repent and then graciously gives us what we need to repent. Father, thank You for the mercy of delivering us from enemies that we could not have defeated on our own. The enemies of sin and death and hell. Father, thank You for Your mercy. We pray now, God, that You would give us mercy to remember what You have done. That we would be a people who often look back so that we might walk forward in faith. Would You do this work in us, Father? Would You make us a people who rejoice to remember what You have done? Both in Your people, down through the history of the Scriptures, in the history of the church, and in the course of our own lives, Father. May we remember and may we rejoice in what You have done. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's continue to worship the Lord and with repentant repentant hearts continue to meditate on His Word. Hear again the refrain of the entire Bible from Lamentations 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end.